We are back to Colossians. Yay! Did you guys remember what book we were even in? It's, it's, it's been six weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so that means you know what we need, right? We need to recap about six weeks worth of stuff before the six-week break. So you ready for it? Rapid fire time. Chapter one, thanks to God for his work in the people, declaration that Jesus is God, a reminder that Jesus has reconciled his people to himself through the work of himself, and that the gospel is the work of the people. There you go. There's chapter one. That took us like five Sundays to get through. Go team, right? Chapter two, be grounded in Christ, not in the world, and be wary of the world because you are to be grounded in Christ and not in the world. Simple enough, right? See, I have to give you all of that for one reason. You, worst place to take a break. You know what the first word of verse 16 is, don't you? Therefore. <laughs> And every time you see that, you need to be reminded of what? We always ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore. So, who are you in this world? How do you live in light of who you are in this world is an important thing in this book. Now, reminders. Paul doesn't know these people. Paul has been told about these people. He has not founded this church. All right, real quick, just because I can't help myself and you know that, right? Dun, 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 to the map. No. <laughs> um, all of Paul's missionary journeys, when he was traveling around, were doing this number right here. And he's going around, and then he went this way, and then he's backing around, and then he's across. But it all centered around these coastlands. If you move inland is where you actually get to uh, Colossae. If uh, down the, uh, the river going inland from Ephesus, so if you have a map in your Bible, you can look at that also. And that's where you would see the river valleys that runs through the seven churches of the book of Revelation are in that same region, basically. So Paul has not been there, but the gospel work that Paul has been doing in and around that area has spread out as missionaries have gone from the churches that Paul has planted and as his teaching has gone because he was centered in Ephesus for three years and in Corinth for a year and a half and then some other time later on. Now, it's actually really, really good news and very helpful for us that Paul does not know these people for one reason. You're not bogged down with a ton of personal greetings and information. The letter is a little bit on the cold side, and I mean that in a good way. It's not, Paul's not trying to pull, not that Paul does, but Paul's not pulling any punches. And if you wonder about Paul pulling punches, go read Corinthians. <laughs> Paul, Paul does not care. Paul, Paul likes to take the snow shovel to the face sometimes when it's necessary. But he's trying to make sure they know who Christ is. They know who they are in light of Christ, and they know how they're supposed to live in light of that. That wouldn't be helpful for you at all in this world would it? Not in the least. So a cold, simple, basic declaration was good for the Colossians, and it's very, very helpful and good for us because it is what we need. Unencumbered, just straight gospel, right to the face, easy, and now you know what you're supposed to do. So with that, in, with that said, you want to dive in? All right, let's dive in. It'll be fun. Remember, if nobody else has fun on a Sunday morning, who does? See, I have fun. If nobody else has any fun, I do. So that's all that matters, right? So verse 16, Therefore, so in light of who you are, in light of your avoidance of the world, in light of your living for Christ, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Oh, we're just starting right off the bat to see how many people we can annoy today, aren't we? Now, this is fun, especially when you consider the time of year we just left. So let's put this into perspective, though. Paul is talking about something that has come down to us in theology known as the adiaphora. 
that which is neither commanded nor forbidden, literally meaning the indifferent. So if Jesus tells you, don't do that, whatever that may be, is there wiggle room? No. When Jesus says, don't do that, you don't get to sit there and go, but, you know, like, what, how about, no, no, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. However, if you do not have a command, either negative or positive, and you know what I mean by that, a positive command is you must do this. A negative command is do not do that. If you don't, in, in absence of either one of those, what do you do? <laughs> no, you don't do what you want. Remember, we are the don't you do you people. <laughs> we are dealing in matters of conscience. Now, what should always inform your conscience, Christian? And you'd better get this right. I want one word answers and one word only. <sighs> okay, I will accept that, but that's not a one word answer. Because what does, he, what does he use to inform your conscience? Hmm? Hmm? Thank you. I, I, when in doubt, I want what? I want a Bible verse. I want a Bible verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, not to pay attention to myths, to endless genealogies with, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this is one of those things that gets twisted up. When you look at the early church, and we're counting early church as Timothy, Titus, the churches that Paul has planted. So Paul was there. You have apostolic instruction in the building, right? When that apostolic instruction leaves, what do you do? Like, what's your standard? What, what books are we exegeting? What are we talking about? What are we applying to your world? Yeah, but what is the word? It's the Old Testament, that what we would call the Old Testament. It exists. You can explain. Always remember, what is Paul explaining? This is what we, uh, when we went through James. If you want to go back and look that up on the website, you can. When we went through James, notice how many times we pointed back to either direct teachings of Jesus or applications of Old Testament wisdom and principles move forward for a New Testament community. The, word, the Bible doesn't go away simply because Paul left. You have the law, you have the prophets, you have the history, and your job is now, Timothy, to explain this, to exegete it, to encourage people to walk faithfully according to this. That's the objective standard by which you will build the faith. That's what the New Testament epistles are expanding upon. When Paul, it's, remember, either we're tracing a direct line in the epistles back to Jesus or to Old Testament principles, which is what Jesus' ministry is built upon. Jesus doesn't appear in a vacuum. He is fulfilling what? Prophecy, promises, fulfilling the law for his people. He's doing all of these things in real time as he's living and functioning and moving. So as you're building a New Testament community, while the New Testament is building, you're building it upon the understanding of Scripture built in the Old Testament. And then as you receive the New Testament, you're building out from there. That's why there's so much practical application in the letters to the Corinthians, because the Corinthians have problems. Like, hey, we have messed up the application of this principle. How now, brown cow, shall we live? And the answer is, this is what you should do. This is how you adjust. This is how you think through this thing. This is what you put together. Christian, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You've just been given more light, more revelation, more explanation. You have less adiaphora than the church in Colossae. 
you have less adiaphora than the church at Corinth because you have been given the instruction from Peter, from Paul, from James, from John. You have been given the gospel of Matthew. You have been given all of these things so you can actually look up and know. Now, is your Bible an instruction manual for every possible thing you might encounter in every avenue of life? No. Were it an actual instruction manual, how big would that puppy be? We'd be rolling Bibles in on dub trucks, be like, <laughs> flipping pages. So when this happens on Tuesdays, you do this. When this happens on Thursdays, no, no, no. You are given what? You are given instruction and principles that you must then apply in your world. Now, this is where life gets really, really, really messy. Because who's applying these principles? People. What's the problem with people? <laughs> How many of them are sinners? Uh-huh. And what do sinful people do? And when you give them good instruction, what do they do with it? Now, <laughs> nothing good, nothing good, right? Now, let's put a little bit of flesh on this because this is important because we have a direct one-to-one. Who is running around Asia Minor in the 50s and 60s A.D.? Remember your little bit of your Bible history. If a heresy spawns and you refute it, does the heretic go, oh man, we lost the argument. All right, I guess we'll go home. We won't do this anymore. We'll just, we'll, we'll stop. He told us we were wrong. We'll, go, we'll, we'll just go home and stop this. Is that what heretics do? What do they do? And if they can't win here, what do they do? They go somewhere else. Go all the way back to the, uh, the fifth decade, go back to the 40s, the Judaizers are running around. What's the problem with the Judaizers? You've got to follow Moses. Then you can become Christian. In order to become a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. There's, you cannot pass go. You must collect the $200. What would it look like for them to be following Moses? Dietary laws, annual feasts, the monthly sacrifices, as well as weekly observances. Food or drink, respect to festival, new moon, or Sabbath day. There's your dietary laws, annual feasts, monthly sacrifices, and weekly observances. They didn't go away just because Paul wrote Galatians. They didn't go away, go away just because other churches got the letter to the Galatians. They looked at that and went, oh man, we lost here. To the next place. I mean, they just keep going. That's why I always tell you there's nothing new under the sun. Um, if we ever get that church history thing we've talked about on Wednesdays off the ground, you will eventually run into things like the Arian heresy. Well, the Arian heresy gets refuted at the Council of Nicaea and at the Council of Chalcedon, and at the Council of Orange. Now, keep in mind, that is 325, 481, and 540, give or take. And Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching the exact same thing. And last time I checked, they're still around. 1,700 years of refutation, church councils, church meetings, statements of faith, and they're like, nuh-uh, we're just going to keep teaching what we want to teach. The enemy doesn't quit. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't go, oh, you refuted that one. We just keep going. That's why I always laugh about those Discovery Channel and History Channel things that they put out every year at Christmas and Easter. You're like, this is the same one you did five years ago. You just got a new history expert from a different college to tell me the same garbage we told you was a lie five years last time. You know what they're going to do five years from now? They're going to get a different expert from a different college to tell you the same garbage that you just refuted 10 years ago and nothing new is under the sun and it just keeps on going. Now, I tell you all of that because... What happens when there is someone who is convinced that that's the way Christianity looks and you're not doing it? 
Because that's part of the problems we've seen in these churches. Romans 14. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look, when it comes to something you are uncertain about, you have a conscience. Guided by the Holy Spirit, informed by Scripture. If someone wants to argue with you, the first thing they have to bring is what? Come on. If you are guided by your conscience, informed by the Holy Spirit, informed by Scripture, and I want to change your mind on something, my starting point is to bring you what? To explain that you're wrong. A Bible verse. Here is the thing you have understood wrongly, and now we get to sit here and talk about it. Now we get to sit here and hash it out. If we cannot come to a consensus, we probably are dealing with something that falls into this adiaphora category. Again, a conscience issue, not a direct command, informed by the Spirit, informed by Scripture. Which means, if they got a Bible verse, and you're not convinced, but you don't have a Bible verse, you know what problem you have? What's informing your conscience? You are. This is why I always tell you, have a reason. What's the why behind who you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and then why you're doing it is informed by all of these things. So this is what Paul is starting to address based on, he's basically trying to put these folks into this category, and he is refuting them based on that. So verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Ultimately, What's the answer to your question about the Old Testament? Why is this done this way? Help me out, come on. When in doubt, when you don't know what to say. <laughs> Why is this sacrifice offered in this manner? The, the baseline answer is Jesus. Now, is there more to that answer? Always, but the ultimate understanding is to point you to Christ. Remember, if you read your Bible... Start to finish and you get to the end and you have gotten to something other than the completed work of Christ. What have you done? You have done something wrong. Start over. You know, do not pass go. Do not collect $200 and figure this out again. Hebrews 8 gives you an example of this. Now, if he were on earth, talking about Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Reminder from going back to when we were going through Exodus. Why does the tabernacle look the way that it does? Moses was given instruction. But would you like to build the tabernacle based on just the written instructions that Moses gave you in the book of Exodus? Because there's a whole lot of wiggle room in that. You'd be like, it has to look a certain way. Here's the blueprint. And then you get the instructions from Exodus. And it's like, okay, it's a foot and a half tall and a foot and a half wide, and it's a box. What kind of box? <laughs> I need more than that. Moses has shown a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle, the eternal tabernacle that they are supposed to mirror in their work. Why? Because the sacrifices that they are offering are supposed to be pointing to the sacrifice that Christ will offer. The worship that they are offering is supposed to be completed and fulfilled in the righteous worship that Christ enables in his people. Everything about that sacrificial system is meant to point not to Israel and not to the temple, but towards the dwelling of God with his people because of the work that Christ has completed. What is the new tabernacle? Where does God dwell, Christian? 
in his people by his spirit. You have become the people. You have become the temple. You have become the worshiper because of the completed work that Christ has made. So let's have some fun. See how many people I can annoy, because that's always fun, isn't it? And let's put some flesh on this and take, the, take an example of this in our modern context. You ready? You evil people. Christmas. You know that comes from the Christ Mass, and that's a Latin thing from the Roman Catholic Church, which is anathema, and you're celebrating pagan traditions. How dare you? <laughs> Trees. They come from the Saturnalia Festival. It's a symbol of rebirth in the winter cold months, and you're an awful pagan. How dare you? Eggnog? Eggnog. You know why they use eggs, right? Because they're a symbol of new life. It's a pagan symbol, and you're all evil people for drinking your eggnog. Shame on you. Now, some of you know some of that. Some of you are going, yes, yes. Get them, get them. Now, most of you are sitting here saying what? Everybody calls it Christmas. It's just what it's called. I don't care. Trees are pretty. I put lights on them and I enjoy it. And it makes my house smell good because we cut one down or I like the fake one because it looks pretty. Uh, eggnog tastes good. I'm not worshiping anything. And you know what I would honestly tell you? You're right. And you know what I would tell the first person who thinks that using the, the word Christmas is bad and that the eggnog is evil and you shouldn't have a tree? You know what I would tell them? You're right. You are convinced in your conscience. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because if you have a conscience informed by that history and that bugs you because of who you are and the world that you have come out of, don't do it. I understand completely. However, we live in a culture that does not define those things in that manner. And not everything that is associated with the world makes you worldly and pagan and contributing. Remember, you live in the world. This is Paul's warning to the Corinthians, right? When I told you to disassociate from the immoral people, I didn't mean the immoral people outside the church because which are, which are the non-immoral people outside the church? There's none of them. I meant the immoral people in your church. Kick them out. Don't associate with those people. Purify the body. Keep in mind, in all of these things, I am talking about adiaphora. Things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. You have neither a positive or negative command. If you have one, or you think you can make the case for one, you know what you're obligated to do? To make that case and to do it. And if you are even remotely convinced by that argument, you know what you're obligated to do? To follow it. Because you are supposed to be held captive to Scripture, not to the whims of the world, and not to the things you like, even if you've liked them your entire life. This is why I forever tell you to think through the who you are and the why you are, and be prepared, because... What ends up happening typically with our interaction with culture is we have surrendered on so many avenues and so many things in life that we don't even recognize where we have surrendered. We haven't thought through any of the things. So when I, I mean, I give you somewhat that jokingly thing about Christmas, but at the same token, there is a segment of the world that goes, you hypocrites. You keep saying Christmas instead of Advent and you keep bringing down trees and you're just adopting the things of the world and following along. Now, is that segment large? No. Does it exist? Yes. When you encounter them or when you hear their arguments, you know what you need to be prepared to do? You need to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And if you can't, you need to change your world. And you need to change how you live in the world and among the world. You need to be evaluating who you are and what you are on a constant basis. And if you can't defend that thing, 
and you're not willing to let that thing go for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ, you know what you just discovered? You discovered your idol. Now we have to kill it. <laughs> Every single time. This is what the war in the world looks like. It's not a war with them primarily. It's a war with you. It's a renewing of heart, a renewing of mind, and ensuring that your first ministry is always the priority. Where does your ministry begin? With who? With you. Starts with you. Remove the log from your eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye every single time. This is how you're supposed to live. So be thinking, be evaluating. This is important moving forward. Now, Paul is dealing with something specific. Those Judaizers are running around. They've ignored Colossians. They don't care. They are clinging to a tradition in a past as opposed to clinging to try. Clinging to Christ. If I could speak English, we'd be all set. So let's keep moving because Paul is not giving up on this. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, this should be an obvious one, right? This builds on what was previous in this chapter. If you go back to Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. By the way, you're also seeing hints of a philosophy that will be a major deal in about three decades called Gnosticism. We've talked about this before. You are still dealing with Gnosticism in the world to this day. Um, Gnosticism was a lovely little worldly philosophy that took... Um, I can never remember if it's Platonic or Aristotelian philosophy of creation and how the world works, and then basically tried to merge that into every religion known to man. <laughs> so there's a, there's a god, and there's a demigod, and there's an urge, and there's a demiurge, and there's angels, and then we'll name this one that, and we'll name this one Jesus, and then this one can be John, and we'll just borrow every philosophy we can. We'll stick it, I want to say it's, it's Aristotelian. We'll stick it onto an Aristotelian category, and then we will shove it out into the world, and there's light, and there's dark, and there's good and there's evil. If you'd like to understand what it looks like as it adapts through the ages, go watch an Oprah Winfrey episode from like the mid-90s and you will see modern-day Gnosticism in full flower. I mean, the, the whole New Age movement where you're, you're recentering and you're, you know, you're aligning yourself to the universe and stuff like that, it's basically ancient Gnosticism for the 21st century. It's the same idea. Anything that would be New Age. Same concept, same idea. They just slap a different word on it, slap a different name on it, and go, oh, look, it's a brand new thing. Aren't you, don't you want to be led astray by this empty philosophy? See, the answer should be no, but you know what happens? Because we're so comfortable borrowing and putting Christian meaning on things, we don't even recognize that we have borrowed from the world. And to the Christmas thing, I actually had this argument years ago because, all right, there's this thing that comes out of Cameron. It's, is it Danville? Is that where the Chrismon stuff came from? Danville, Virginia, which was 45 minutes north of a church that I pastored for several years. And they came up with this thing called Chrismons. I thought it was Jamaican. It has nothing to do with Jamaica. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my bad sense of humor. They took a Christmas tree, but the only ornaments you were allowed to put on it 
had to do with like the Greek letters for Jesus's name and the fish symbol. And all the Chrismons had these descriptions about what biblical thing they represented. And you're supposed to read them when you decorate the tree and do all this. It's a, it's a big thing in the Southeast. And I was looking at it going, this is like the worst of all possible worlds. Because you're basically saying that the purpose of the Christmas tree is Jesus. See, I'm comfortable enough to say that the church has co-opted Christmas trees. Like, we took that from the world and said, we like it, we're going to slap some Jesus on it and do it. Now, when I put up a Christmas tree, it's because they smell good and I think they're pretty and my wife likes to hang lights on them, but I'm not sitting there going, no, 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 I have reclaimed the tree from the world. No, it smells good and I like trees and my family enjoys cutting one down and makes us happy. That's the extent of it. Now, you can accuse me of lots of things, we'll have that argument another day. And I've actually had that argument with folks. Some are convinced, some are not, it's okay. The thing that bugs me is we're so comfortable with taking the worldly things and then trying to slap a Bible meaning on it and then acting like that's where it came from that we're hypocritical onto what the thing is and where it came from. We do that so well and so often that we don't realize how easily we are adopting the things of the world, which means who's influencing who at this point. Which is, again, why I forever tell you, what should you be anchored upon? Scripture. If you don't have a Bible verse, get one. If this bothers you where you think it's wrong, you know what it's better to do? It better start going away because you have been convinced and you need to change things. This is part of the warning. This should be obvious when these empty philosophies come in, when these different ideas come in. We slap a different name on it, but it's still the worldly philosophy. You should be able to look at that and go, I'm not taking that, but we so quickly borrow and try to assimilate that we don't realize when we're doing it. Hebrews chapter 6 is the thing we need to keep coming back to. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. That's where we are supposed to anchor, upon Christ, the completed work that he has done. Not trying to borrow from the world to convince them, but declaring who he is, what he has done, and what you should be doing in light of that. This is one of the reasons, I used to have this argument with my um, seminary professors when it came to missions. There is a, there is a study of missions. There, we're so clever in the church, we call it missiology. <laughs> it's the study of the work of missions. And within that, the great argument is how far on the sliding scale should we go for contextualization? Contextualization is the taking of the gospel message and making it palatable to the culture that we're going into. Now, there are lots of things that get done with that. One of the most egregious in my mind that was an absolute red line was, and I can never remember where it is, but it's, I never remember if it's South American or African. I think it's African, and it may not even be African. It might be Asian. I don't remember anymore. But there was a culture that sheep and shepherding is just, evil and anathema to this people. So when they made a Bible translation, all the references to sheep were translated out and changed to a different animal that made sense to them. And I'm going, I see what you're doing because you're trying to avoid the cultural offense and make it easier to explain to them. That's the job of exposition. That's the job of teaching and preaching is to say, I get you hate sheep, but they didn't. (laughs) I get you think it's awful, but they didn't. So that's where the explaining comes in is you do the hard work. That's why I still like the NASB. The NASB is so aggravating to read. How many times a week do I stumble over it? Multiple times a week. Why? Because it tries to preserve Greek and Hebrew word orders, which make no sense in English, because you end up speaking Yoda. 
You know, because in English, you English is one of the few languages in the world that does this, where we have sentence structure and sentence order determined structure. Like you know where the noun is because where do we put it in the sentence? It's first. Then there's a verb. Then there are direct objects and indirect objects and prepositional phrases. That's how you know what they are. They're in order. Greek and Hebrew don't do that. You can write a whole sentence in Greek and make the noun, the, the proper noun, the last word of the sentence. And it's done by case ending. So if you've ever studied any Latin or any um, Latin languages, Spanish will do this. Um, French still does this. I don't know if German does. I think German does. Isn't German an inflected language? Any German speakers in here? <laughs> German's inflected that way, isn't it? You can play with the word order and then you can emphasize things because whatever you put in the beginning of the sentence is important. It's not the subject, but it's important. So if I wanted to, t if I wanted to emphasize like Joe threw the ball in Greek, I could put through first to really let you know that it was important that you know that he threw the ball. And then you gotta figure out who, who did what. English doesn't do that. So when you try to preserve word order, it becomes very awkward in English because you're not changing it as much. And then you get so used to how English is supposed to sound that when you read it like this, I and then I spit it out and we move on. So that's necessary though, because I don't want to know the Americanized version of what Paul wrote to the Colossians. I want to as much as possible when communicating with you to give you what Paul wrote to the Colossians in a language you understand. That's important and that's always needed. When you start trying to change the message or you start trying to change the medium of the message, you inevitably change who Christ is, and what he has accomplished. You have added and subtracted from the work of God. You have become the heretic. Congratulations, go team. Is that where anybody wants to live? No. We don't try to appease the culture. We proclaim the truth in the midst of culture. We don't try to adopt from them so they will like us. They're never going to like you. They're never going to appreciate you. They're always going to hate you. No matter what you surrender, when they want you to surrender the next thing, when you say no, what are they going to do? But I surrendered like 87 things before this one. I'm just not willing to give you this one. You're evil. We hate you. Get away. You're awful. Fundamentalist. Meh. Doesn't matter. If they're going to do that after you've surrendered on a hundred things, you know what you should have done? Should have not surrendered on those hundred things because they're going to hate you anyway. Always remember this. This is why you evaluate in the world and why you're careful. That's part of the warning Paul's giving you. Don't start drifting. Anchor. Hold. Why? Because when you are drifting, you're coming verse 19. Not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. See, that's a warning. This is your John 15. Who's the vine and who's the branch? Yes, Jesus is the vine. You're the branch. When you get plucked away from the vine, what do you accomplish? What's the, which old hymn is that? Oh, this is when you get bad musical theater here, isn't it? What, okay, Cameron, help me out. What is that? Apart from him, I could do nothing. Apart from him, I surely fail. I'm putting you on the spot now. I'll take a drink of water so you can think while I hum the Jeopardy theme. Oh, that's one of the, it's one of those old hymns. Apart from him, I could do nothing. Apart from him, I'd surely fail. I would be saying. <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah, what's the name of the stupid song? <laughs> yeah, she knows the song. 
Yeah, there you go. All right, you're fired. <laughs> now she's got it stuck in her head now. You're welcome. You two will have that in your head. You won't know why. Why is that song a thing, though? Because it's a reminder that when you separate, because you have adopted the things of the world, when you have drifted into the world, you are no longer grounded and attached to the vine. You have removed your anchor. You are shifting away. Remember who this Christ is, Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Remove yourself from that. Remove yourself from all of that. What are you left with? Creator, sustainer, deliverer. If I take that away from you, what are you doing? You're Ephesians 4. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's when you are connected. That is what you are sacrificing when you have entered into the world, when you have surrendered to the world. And that's why Paul continues for the Ephesians. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's supposed to be the mission anchored, which is why when you enter into the marketplace of ideas, when you enter into the things of this world, you have to be careful who is influencing who, who is changing who. What are you living for? Why are you living in this manner? Have you adopted the things of the world willy-nilly? Have you thought them through? Are they pulling you astray? Be careful. This is my big warning. Be careful. If you can look at me with a straight face and say, I'm good. I'm here. I am anchored. I'm fine. Go for it. And by the way, we're not done on this topic because we're, we're coming back to this because we're going to get some more examples. It'll be fun. <laughs> if you can't, if you start to notice, this is what we, I will give you a better example. I've talked to you about this with friends before. If all of your friends are non-Christians, you know who's probably going to win after a while, right? Not if I said a lot of your friends. Some of you, like, have friends. You're weird, but it's okay. <laughs> Sorry, my wife will vouch. Like, people have to talk to me. You know this. <laughs> Some of you have lots of friends. Some of you have lots of unbelieving friends. That's not my problem. That's not my complaint. What I'm telling you, if all of your friends are unbelieving friends, you know who's going to win out in the end, right? We used to see this. I used to have this argument when I was a um, college student because when I was going through my education degree, the big thing was group work and group assignments. We've got to foster community and create teamwork and all these. You're nodding like, yes. It was stupid then. It's stupid now. And I used to get in these arguments because the elementary people loved it. 
because most of my friends were not secondary education people, but they were the elementary people. They loved it. Like they can create these little pods in their classrooms. And part of the reason they loved it is because at the time in the state of North Carolina, the ratios for elementary schools were like one to 16 or 17. So like if you were one teacher, your class size was, was capped at 17 or 18. And unless you got a teacher's assistant, then they could only give you like 20, 22. I taught a U.S. history class in a high school with 35 students in it. There was not enough room in the classroom for those desks. When I did my student teaching at Enloe High School, I taught seven periods of civics with 210 total students. At the beginning of the year, by the end of the year, it was 243. <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> I was. So... Imagine trying to do group work, and the complaint I always made is like, guys, let's be honest here. The argument you're giving me is we're going to take a failing student, we're going to take a couple of okay students, and we're going to take a really high-achieving student, and we're going to put them in a group. You all know what's happening with that project, right? The failing kid is going to sit in the corner and go, I don't care. And that kid who cares about their grades is going to work themselves to death to make sure that they pass and then all the other slackers in the group are going to get the same grade because one kid did everything. This is terrible. And if you do this long enough, you know what's going to happen to the two middling students, right? Are they going to become high-achieving A-level students? No, they're going to slack off like the failing kid. I'm going to take these two kids who are at least doing some of the work, and I'm going to make them that dude from Dazed and Confused. This is a terrible plan. <laughs> You're welcome, right? You suddenly have Matthew McConaughey in your head. Right? I'm going to turn them into complete flunkies because now they don't have to do anything because this kid who's determined they're going to Harvard is going to do everything. It's a terrible plan. Welcome to the world. I pick you up and I leave you as a solitary Christian. I put you in the midst of the darkness. Yes, your light will shine. But as you live in that culture and as you are alone in that world, you will begin to lose because it is easier to go along to get along. This is why you are not called to solitary Christianity. This is why the warnings of Hebrews about the fellowship of believers and why you must hold to that and why it is so good. Because when you try to go it alone, you're doomed. You have nothing because they will overwhelm you each and every time. However, in the community of faith, in the body of believers, as we are strengthened, as we are encouraged, we are empowered and prepared to go back out into the stew of whatever it is may be out there, and we have an opportunity to be recharged and replugged. But that still means you must be wary in this world and make sure that the things that you are following are coming from God and that they are not the pull of the world. Be careful. Always remember, terms and conditions may apply, your mileage may vary, but you must be careful to ensure that you are anchored. Because remember, nobody ever has gone running headlong into sin as a Christian been like, I don't know how I got here. It's just a mystery to me. I was here and then I was gone. You know what happened. You took a step. And you took a step and you slid a little farther and you slid a little farther and you justified this and you justified that and so that by the time you got from 1 to 20 by the time you got to 20 you had justified so many things in between then that it just didn't seem like a big deal constantly evaluate and get yourself back to step 1 so with all of that said verse 20 if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? We're going to get to what they are in a second. See, because there's your irrelevant question, because you know better, right? You have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who lives, but he. So you would never, ever 
buy into the things of the world, would you? You would never, ever be led astray by worldly philosophy. You would never be convinced by bad arguments. Have you turned on religious television lately? Have you seen what passes for our luminaries of culture? There's a reason why the world makes fun of us. It's because some of the times our, our biggest voices that claim to be Christian are doing just that, claiming to be Christian. And our best-selling Christian books are Christian in name only because they appease the world. And the world's like, ooh, we like those Christians. Why don't you be like them? Because they're not. <laughs> now, how often do we say that? How often do we hold to the anchor? How often are we willing to go, well, you know, he's not great, but... And look, guilty. I've done this, where somebody will ask me about somebody. Do you, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, it's all right. It's not terrible. You know? <laughs> you know what I should probably be saying? Run. Run. He's the dude. What's our drill? When you start getting heresy from a pulpit, what do you do? Throw something and then... Run screaming from the room as a warning to others. I keep telling you, I'm going to get a bell and we're going to do drills. <laughs> I'm going to put some hymnals under your seats and be ready to go. <laughs> when I come in with a catcher's mask on, you'll be like, ooh, it's the day. Today is the day. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the warning. And by the way, don't, don't beat yourself up over this. You're not unique in human history that the world is tempting. Um, Romans chapter 7 I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That's Paul. What is he saying? I know what I'm supposed to do. And then I see the thing of the world and I'm like, I shouldn't do that. Why do I want to do that? I know I shouldn't. I know it's no good. Why do I want it? <laughs> You're human. You're human. Recognize that, but recognize that this is the work that Christ is actively doing in you. Remember our, remember our, our, our little understanding of, of time. You have been saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. You have been redeemed from the pit. You have been declared righteous in the throne room of God. You have been saved. You are being sanctified, purified in this world, warring against your sins and the temptations of this world. You are being saved. And because of the work that has been done and is being done, you will persevere unto the final kingdom where sin will be washed away and you will stand blameless before God in his eternal kingdom. You will be saved. That is the life that you live. And believe me, it's a lot nicer to think about the what has been done and what will be done as opposed to the what is being done. Because who wants the difficulty? Who wants the discipline? Who wants the war? But it's what we have, and it's who we are in Christ. And if you're capable of forsaking that and walking away, then number one hasn't been done and number three won't be done because they all work together in what is being accomplished by God. So <clears throat> decrees such as what? Do not handle. Do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Ugh, nothing new under the sun. What are some of the biggest divisions we've seen in Christianity the last 20 years? Oh, you still shop at Home Depot, huh? How dare you? You went to Disney World. You're 
awful. Who do you think you are? You put up a Christmas tree? Well, we now know you're obviously not as Christian as I am, who has forsaken such worldly uh, things, and those visages of the past have been cast away. How dare you? Now look, if you want to boycott something, boycott something. If you think it's wrong, and you don't want your money to go to that, I agree with you. Your money probably shouldn't go to that. Be careful about making a law where there is no law. Be careful. Look, we have enough things that we should be making distinctions over. We would much rather prefer as humanity to make distinctions in areas we shouldn't as opposed to making distinctions in areas where we should. And what I mean by that is we're much more comfortable in going, you prosperity preaching hack who is not preaching the gospel but is lying to people. We won't say that, but we'll go, you shouldn't be a member of this church anymore. You went to Disney for vacation and you know they're evil and you gave them our money. How dare you? We're much more comfortable with the second one than we are the first one, and that needs to change. We need to get back to the focus on the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing. Now, again, you are going to have to encounter the world. Your mileage may vary. Terms and conditions may apply, and you will understand how your conscience has been assaulted and how you are supposed to live. Be careful in this place and be careful with the brethren who do not have the same conscience you have and if it is not begin if their conscience is not the same because it is not informed by by the bible then what should you be doing calling them evil or debating the bible bring scripture have fruitful discussions understand who we are and what we are and why we are this is one of those lessons that we don't like we live in a messy world. Why is it messy? Because there are people, and we are messes. Now, if I'm going to live in a messy world, you know what I'm going to have to put up with? The mess. And not just my mess. I have to put up with your mess. And you know what you have to do? You have to put up with mine. And sometimes it's because one of us is wrong. It's sometimes it's because we're just not in the same place on the things of this world. And we have to be very, very careful to make sure we're drawing the right distinctions as opposed to the wrong ones. Because again, we're really comfortable fighting over preference and we're a lot less comfortable fighting over truth. And the way this world is going, Christian, there's going to have to be some stern lines drawn. And we're going to have to be willing to hold to them. And if we're so busy trying to kill each other, over whether or not we shopped at this store, whether or not we ate at that restaurant, or whether or not we watched this movie, we're probably not going to be able to lock arms and actually hold to the lines that need to be held in this world to stand firm for the gospel. So again, be informed by your conscience. Live what your conscience has informed you, but be careful to ensure that it is actually informed by the right thing and that the thing that you are attacking is the actual enemy and not the brother who is trying to walk with you. These are the warnings that we have to have on a regular basis. So, the, my pages are sticking together. How does Paul finish it up? These are the matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, in self-abasement, in a severe treatment of the body. That is always something we have to remember. Christian, what is the difference between Christianity informed by Scripture and every single man-made religion that has ever been concocted? It's actually quite easy. No, it's more than that. It's the difference between human achievement and divine accomplishment. Go to every, 
what's the word? It just went right out of my head. I had a word, and then it left, and now I can't get it back. <sighs> Shadow changing every adjustment of Christianity, every false manifestation of Christianity. <sighs> There's a word for this that I don't know. Who feels like being a thesaurus today? <laughs> if you come up with a word, use it in your brain. It'll be good for you. Counterfeit. Thank you. That's a good. Every counterfeit of Christianity. Yes, we will use that. Look at Mormonism. Look at Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at the prosperity hackery I talked about. You notice what they all put into, put into common? You get to do something. Actual Mormon doctrine is you do your best and Jesus does the rest. I'm not making that up. It's not written quite that tritely, but that's the basic function. Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got hoops to jump through. You've got things that you must accomplish for God to be happy with you. The prosperity thing, the reason why I get so annoyed with it, you know what they end up doing half the time? You know, they'll have their little healing festival where they do their dog and pony show and scam people out of all their money. And you know what happens when you didn't get healed? You didn't have enough faith. If only you'd believed a little bit more. See, who's in charge here? I am. I can do good. I can accomplish things. Your Bible tells you what? You're empty and worthless and hopeless, but God. What's the, what are the final words from the cross? It is finished. Not it is hopefully going to get you there. Not, you know, maybe one day, if you're good enough, it's like, why do we think of God like we're offering our children ice cream? Like, if you behave, we'll go for ice cream later. And we're like, Ee! like, if you're good, God will let you into heaven. Ooh! <laughs> That's worldly thinking. It is accomplished. This is what scripture gives you that the world cannot. And actual accomplished faith and actual completed salvation. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. If your sins have been covered by Christ and you have been declared righteous before his throne, if you are being sanctified, it is because of that previous work being done. And if that is going on to this day, then you will, you will, regardless of how dark the world is, regardless of how evil your soul might be at this exact moment, because of the work of Christ, you will enter into his kingdom blameless because you are fighting the good fight because he will not allow you to do anything else. I've given you the bad example. That's why the, the Hebrews 12, the, the discipline of the Lord, because the Holy Spirit is going to sit there and go, keep doing that and see what happens. I've told you to stop it. Told you to stop it. Don't make me take my belt off. You're going to make me take my belt off. Okay. <laughs> That's how it works. It's how it's always going to work because God has not left you. He has not forsaken you and he will not leave you to wallow in the lust of the flesh and the desire of the eyes. That's why Paul in his great remarking can be so joyous. The same guy who's complaining. So go back. It's the last little thing. Those things that are of no value against fleshly indulgence, go back to Romans 7 from Paul. I know that nothing good dwells in me, nothing in my flesh, for the willing is present in me because I know what is true. But the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? Who knows the very next line? Therefore, it moves to chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. In other words... Your joy is that fight. Paul knows I shouldn't do that thing. Why do I want to do that thing? That's good news, Christian. 
That's good news because you know the truth and you are now warring in the power of the Spirit and you know your war will be successful because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. That fight, that aggravation that you feel, that tug from the world is good news. You know what the unanchored person doesn't feel? Tugging. Pull up the anchor in the boat. Will it feel like you're being yanked? No, you'll just drift along. You won't notice that there was a place you were supposed to be because you don't belong anywhere. But as long as the anchor is holding, it's going to be like, why aren't we moving? Ah, yeah. It's an anchor. And while the storm may be rough, where still are we? Right where we're supposed to be. This is why we rejoice in how many of those little steps? We take those and we are happy. We rejoice. We evaluate. We go to war and we think through the things of this world. Because we have now been changed by God and he is continuing that work in us. This goes all the way back to the beginning of John. John 1. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He has accomplished. He has finished. He has brought you before God, blameless, and he will work in you, dragging you, kicking and screaming if necessary, until that final day, because he has redeemed. And the best part is, you know when you're doing the kicking and the screaming. You know. Because you're going, I don't want to, I don't need to be going this way, and I know. Embrace the fight. Embrace the struggle of the world. They already hate you. They already don't like you. Who cares? God loves you and has redeemed you, and brought you before his throne, and he knows your name, and he calls you his own, and you are his, and there is nothing that is undoing that. Therefore, you can rejoice, and you can war against this world, and you can be secure because he has brought you in. That's the encouragement here. Who are you in light of Christ? You are warring against the world because he is warring with you against it because he has accomplished your salvation. Therefore, Christian, rejoice and celebrate and know that he has you. Let's pray.